Good morning, West Park. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis chapter 42. And if you don't mind, go ahead and bookmark Hebrews chapter 12. That was what we read earlier. So Genesis 42 and Hebrews 12. While you're turning there, let me start by letting you in on something that God has been teaching me over the last two and a half years. That's something that a lot of you all already know and have experienced. Being a parent is hard, okay? It is challenging. I mean, it is amazing. It's, it's awesome, but it is hard. And just like a lot of you all, my desire as a parent is to model Christ-likeness for my boys. That's the, the desire of my wife as well, to model Christ-likeness. We want to help them grow in spiritual maturity, but what I'm learning is I often, even just two and a half years in, model the wrong things. This was clear last week when Allie took our boys uh, to take dinner uh, to a friend of ours who's been going through a hard time. And so they went and they dropped off dinner and Allie got back in the car and she thought, you know, this is a great time for a teaching moment. Right? Like I can, I can teach our two-year-old why we did this. And so she began telling our two-year-old knocks, you know, hey, we, you know, we want to be like Jesus, right? And so we want to care for people who are in need. We want to be sad with them when they're sad. We want to, to help people. We want to love people well. And Allie said, you know, she tries to do this as often as she can, but this was kind of different. Knox was actually listening, right? Like, like he was, you know, he's two and a half, so typically when she does things like this, it just kind of goes over his head, but, but he was listening intently. And he was kind of nodding along, and she was getting excited because what she was saying seemed to be landing, right? Like, he's, he's, he's tracking with her. And then she got done, and she was so excited to hear the profound response that he was going to have to this because it seemed like, you know, God was just really working in this moment. And here's what he said. I think we should go to Starbucks. <laughs> And so it turns out I have taught my son something, okay? <laughs> he has inherited my love for Starbucks, but the whole loving Jesus thing just hasn't quite clicked yet. <laughs> well, this morning we're going to be talking about our Heavenly Father, and thankfully we're going to see that he is a much better dad than I am. But just as I am concerned about the spiritual maturity of my boys, and we're concerned about how to help them grow, we're going to see this morning that our Heavenly Father is intent on helping us to grow in maturity. He is intent on helping us to all grow in maturity. And so we're going to see that in the story of Joseph. Okay, the story of Joseph will be starting in chapter 42 here in a second. But let me just remind you where we've been to this point. And so um, I'm covering three chapters of this story today, over 100 verses. So I'm not going to read it all because that would take up all my time. And so my plan is I'm going to summarize these hundred verses here, and then I'm going to take you to a New Testament passage that we read earlier that I think makes sense of what's happening in this story. Okay, so that's my plan this morning. But we're starting in chapter 42, but let me remind you how we got here. So the Joseph story starts in Genesis 37, and in Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers betray him, and out of jealousy, sell him into slavery, and he's taken to Egypt. When he goes to Egypt... 
Things are going pretty well for a while, but then he's thrown in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And then a bunch of other crazy things happen, most of them bad. And then 13 years later, 13 years after he was sold, he goes from the pit to the palace and takes over as second in command in Egypt. Because he is able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And so we talked about that two weeks ago. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And you may remember, the result of the dreams isn't good. Pharaoh comes with these dreams, and Joseph interprets them, but but the news is bad. The news is that for the next seven years, there's going to be abundance. But then what's coming is famine. And so... Joseph, by by interpreting this dream with the help of God, is able to tell Pharaoh, here's what we need to do. We need to save up over the next seven years. And then when the famine hits, we'll be prepared. And that's exactly what happens. So here, when we're picking up in 42, the famine has hit. Everyone else is struggling, but Egypt is okay because of the wise stewardship of Joseph. And here's what it says. Chapter 42, we, we go to Jacob, Joseph's father. And Joseph's brothers, and they're being affected by this famine. Here's what it says, just the first four verses. Chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So the brothers, ten of them, the 11th, Benjamin, is staying back because Jacob won't let him go. Ten of them are heading to Egypt to go get grain. And to make the long story short, they end up there, and wouldn't you know it, who do they stand in front of? Joseph. They stand there in the same room as Joseph, because he's the one who's responsible for giving out the grain. And we're told that Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, which, which makes sense, right? He was a teenager. It's been a while. He's probably dressed differently than they remember. But Joseph recognizes him. But here's where this story gets really interesting and just kind of weird. We may think that the story would end right there. Right? Joseph is here standing in front of his brothers. And remember, they're bowing down before him. It's exactly what he had dreamed. Right Here it is, 13 years. It's happening right here. He dreamed. He came up to him and said, I dream. I had a dream that you're going to bow down in front of me. Here it is. And so we may think, well, that's the end of the story. Joseph reveals himself, but that's not what he does. He kind of begins to mess with them, right? It's, it's weird. There's a reason we skip over this part when we're talking about the Joseph story, because it just gets kind of weird. Instead, what he does, instead of revealing himself, he actually accuses them of being spies, and he has them thrown in prison for a few days. And then, a few days later, he brings them out, and he says, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm a fair guy, Okay. I'll believe you that you're not spies, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep one of your brothers. You have to keep, you have to give me one of your brothers. He has to stay here as a hostage. And then here's what I need you to do. I need you to go home. I need you to get this other brother that you told me about, Benjamin. And I need you to bring him back here. That's what he asked him to do. And so that's what the brothers do. They, they leave, 
Joseph keeps their brother Simeon, and they go back to Jacob, and they tell him what just happened. And they say, okay, here's the deal. we got to go back, and we got to take Benjamin. But Jacob refuses to do it. He won't give up another son. But here's the problem. There's only so much food. <laughs> so eventually they run out again, and they have to go back to Egypt. And they say, okay, well, this time we have to take Benjamin. And finally, Jacob relents. And so they go back. Now ten brothers go back including Benjamin, and they go back and they stand in front of Joseph again. And here's what we're told. This is, this is a really touching scene. Here's chapter 43, verse 30. It says, Benjamin walks in the room, and Joseph is just filled with compassion. Look at this. It says, then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. So through all this, Joseph has not stopped loving Benjamin or the rest of his brothers for that matter. We see here that he still loves them. And at the start of chapter 44, the brothers are about to head home. But Joseph isn't done with them yet. <laughs> Here's what he tells his servant. He says, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And so the brothers get what they came for. They get the grain. They take their sacks. They leave. But then Joseph sends his servant after them. And the servant catches them and says, I need to check your bags. And he looks. And what does he find in Benjamin's bag? The cup that Joseph has planted. Weird, right? <laughs> it's weird. And so he drags them back in, and he stands them before Joseph, and they're just begging for forgiveness. And here's what Joseph does. He says, okay, I'm a fair guy. You can go in peace, but here's what you need. Here's what I need. Leave the one who stole the cup. Leave Benjamin. And then the, the rest of you are free to go. We'll talk more about that in a little bit because that's a crazy scene. But Judah, it's Judah here, one of the brothers, he stands up and he gives a speech. We'll talk about that later. And after this speech, it's then that Joseph can't hold it any longer. In chapter 45, he sends everyone out of the room except his brothers and he finally says, it's me. It's me. So that's our story for today. <laughs> that's our story for today. I told you, it's weird. That's our story. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, Joseph goes on to tell his brothers that through everything that has gone on, God was at work. He was doing something. And so this morning, I want to talk about what he's doing here. And I think it can be summarized in just one word. Discipline. Discipline. That's our theme for this morning, discipline. That is what God is doing here. In this story, we get a case study of the fatherly discipline of the Lord. And so I want to talk about that under three headings. Number one, the need for discipline. Number two, the process of discipline. And then number three, the result of discipline. So the need, the process, and the result. So let's start with number one, the need for discipline. Think back to this story. Think back to the beginning 
Genesis 37. It's a long time ago that we preached that, it feels like now, beginning of the summer. But when we're introduced to this family, it is the definition of dysfunction. Remember that? The definition of dysfunction. Jacob, the father, has royally messed up his kids. First of all, he adored Joseph so much that he built his entire life around him. And when we meet Joseph, he is a narcissistic fool. And then on the flip side, Joseph's brothers didn't receive the love that Joseph received. And so they have become bitter and jealous to the point of being willing to sell their brother into slavery. We can summarize it like this. Everyone in that family was on the road to becoming a terrible person. But what we see in our passage is that God wasn't content to leave it that way. He intervened. And he stepped in. Notice this. He stepped in to be the father that they never had. Jacob royally messed them up, but God steps in to be the father that they never had. Look at this. Let's go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just start in verse 5, the second half here. This is what Chris read for us earlier. And as we read this, I just want you to pay attention to one word, discipline. Pops up a lot, okay? Let me read it. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I think if you want to know what God is doing in the lives of Joseph and his brothers, I think this is the description right here. We are seeing a case study of his fatherly discipline. God is using life's test to grow them in maturity and in holiness. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing here. So let me explain this word. Let me do some work on this word discipline. Because if I had to guess, when you hear that, your mind immediately goes to punishment. Right? They're synonymous in our heads sometimes. Discipline and punishment. But that's not actually this word that I think appears nine times here in like nine verses, it doesn't actually mean punishment. The Greek word here is paideia. Okay, that's the word that keeps popping up over and over and over again, paideia. And here's the, the definition. Paideia means to oversee and help a child as they grow in maturity through instruction, training, and correction. That's the word. It's to oversee and help a child as they grow in maturity through instruction, training, and correction. And Hebrews 12, 11 points out that this is always a painful process because to do this will mean bringing consequences and unpleasantness into the child's life to help them grow in maturity. That's discipline. That's paideia. And notice, it's not retribution. 
Paideia is not retribution. Retribution means payback. It means giving the child what they deserve. If you're a parent, you've probably been there, right? You're tired, it's late, it's been a long day, and your child acts out, and your only response is just to try to make them cry. <laughs> it's to give them what you feel like they deserve in that moment. But paideia is different. Its goal isn't payback, it's to help the child grow in maturity. It's lovingly using just the right amount of consequences and unpleasantness in order to help the child grow. And if you're a parent, you're feeling guilty right now, aren't you? Because this is so hard to get right, isn't it? It's so hard to get this right. I told you, my son is only two. My oldest son is only two. And I mess this up every day. Whether it be not enough consequences or then responding with too much consequences, it's hard to get this right. I mess it up every single day. And you do too. And guess what? Your parents messed it up, and their parents messed it up, and their parents messed it up. And you can go on down the line. We've all messed this up. And that is the great news of Hebrews chapter 12, because it tells us that this is where our Heavenly Father steps in, and He does it perfectly. He does it perfectly. And the Joseph story is an amazing picture of this. Think about the, the chapters that I just summarized. I told you, they're, they're odd it just seems like Joseph is messing with these guys out of revenge, but that isn't true. What he's doing, he's doing out of love. He's doing it out of love. We know that because he can't even stay in the room with them because he loves them so much. <laughs> he can't stay in the room with them long enough to not cry because he's so compassionate towards them. He's not just getting revenge. So let me point this out. This, this, is, this is so crazy. Let me point out what he does and what he doesn't do. What Joseph does and what he doesn't do in the midst of all these seemingly crazy tests he's putting his brothers through. First of all, this is important. He doesn't pay them back, does he? He doesn't pay them back. Put yourself in Joseph's situation. Think about this. You've been sold into slavery. You've been thinking about this moment for decades. What would you do? <laughs> Probably not what Joseph did, right? He doesn't just get retribution. He doesn't just get payback. He has the power to just snap his fingers and have them thrown in a dungeon forever. He can snap his fingers and do to them exactly what they did to him. Put them in slavery. But that's not what he does. He doesn't do that. So it's clear that Joseph has forgiven them. But notice... He hasn't just forgiven them. He's forgiven them, but he hasn't just forgiven them. Because he could have revealed himself and sent them off to prison. He also could have revealed himself and said, hey, I've forgiven you. He doesn't do that either. Instead, because he loves them, he disciplines them. And that's an amazing picture of what God does to us. He forgives us, right? Because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live, because he died the death that we deserve, if we trust in him, we are forgiven. But God loves us so much that he doesn't stop there. He's too good to leave us there. At that point, he steps in with his fatherly discipline and he leads us into greater maturity. That's our God. Because he loves us that 
much. So that takes us to point two, the process of discipline. The process of discipline. So spiritual maturity is a process. I can promise you that you will never wake up one day and say, I'm mature, right? It doesn't work that way. It's a process. And it's a gradual process. Often way more gradual than we like. The Christian life is a lifelong journey towards spiritual maturity. And so I think I need to remind you that this is, this is important here. I think I need to remind you that when it comes to spiritual maturity, you have a part in your growth. You know that? You have a part in your spiritual growth. If you are serious about growing in spiritual maturity, it will take hard work. Not hard work to earn God's love. I just said, you don't have to earn that, right? But hard work in response to the love that you've been shown. Growing in spiritual maturity will take hard work. Remember, the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So the Christian life is a lifelong journey towards spiritual maturity, But the elephant in the room is that unfortunately some Christians never actually make that journey. There are a lot of men and women who sit in the pews each and every week and they never change. They don't look any different at 30 than they did at 20 or 50 than they did at 30 or 70 than they did at 50. They sit there every week grasping on to their born again certificate and they never change. They never grow. They claim to be a follower of Jesus, but when you look at their lives, they don't look any more like him than they did when they first became a Christian. They don't grow because they don't intend to. That's a problem, isn't it? The Bible actually casts a vision that is totally opposite of that. Look at this, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. You can read it on the screens here. This is Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, And he says this, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. We're called to train ourselves for godliness. Some translations say we're called to discipline ourselves for godliness. But here's where a lot of Christians get it wrong. They never actually train themselves for godliness. Instead, what they do is they just wake up in the morning and they try to be godly. And if that's all you ever do is wake up in the morning and try to be godly, you will always fail. Because by 3 p.m., your willpower is gone. (laughs) And you can't do it anymore. So that's why Paul calls us to train ourselves for godliness. Here's a a really helpful example. I think I heard this from John Ortberg originally, and it's goofy, but it just really, I think, is helpful for understanding the difference here between training and trying. He paints this picture. He says, imagine that it's the uh, Summer Olympics, and you're sitting at home. You know, you're kind of one with your couch, like kind of, you know, sunk into it. You got Cheeto dust all over your fingers, whatever. And you're judging all the world-class athletes as they fail, right? You know, isn't that what we do? And then you get this knock on the door. 
And you go and you answer it, answer it, and it's this really official-looking man wearing a U.S. track suit. And he says, I am so thankful that you are here. We have an emergency. Our best marathon runner got hurt last night. And the marathon is tomorrow. And so here's the thing. No one knows about this. It's kind of a secretive deal. But we actually have a computer. And in this computer, we have the information of every single American. All your physical information, height, weight, high school athletic stats, like all this stuff. And here's what we found out. You have the most potential of any American to win gold in the marathon. So here's what I need from you. Get on the plane. Your race is tomorrow. Picture that. It's dumb, but picture that. (laughs) You're standing there, getting ready to race, right? How is that going to go? Poorly. Poorly. Unless you've been training for a marathon, it's going to go poorly. But what if you try really, really hard? What if, like, your love for America just, you know, like, well, like, I'm going to win this. Will that help? No. No. Because running a marathon means training to become the type of person who can run a marathon, not trying really hard. So do you see the point? A lot of Christians wake up and try to be godly, but they never train themselves for godliness. The Bible says this, I love this verse, 2 Peter 1.3. Peter tells us that we have unbelievable potential for godliness. He says, God has given us everything for life and godliness. And so you may, no matter how much you want it, you may not have the potential to be the best basketball player in the world. You may not have the potential to be the best musician in the world. But you know what you have the potential to be? The godliest person in this room. (laughs) That's what Peter's telling us here. You have the potential to be the godliest person in this room. But you have to train yourself for godliness. A great musician doesn't just show up at the concert and play beautifully. She trains herself to become the type of person that plays beautiful music. So how do we do this? What's this look like in the Christian life? Well, the simple answer is this is where the spiritual disciplines come in, right? Notice that word, discipline. We have a phrase for that, spiritual disciplines, worship with your local church, Bible reading, day in and day out for decades, prayer, fasting, silence and solitude, study, serving, generosity, the list goes on and on and on. I have one book that has about 450 of them. But notice, these are all things that Jesus himself did, right? These are all things that Jesus himself did did. John Mark Comer summarizes it well. He says, if you want the life of Jesus, then you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want the life of Jesus, then you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so just practically, here at our church, why are we having a training program in the fall? It's for this, right? It's for this. Why do we have equipping classes on Sunday morning? For this, We're trying to give you opportunities to come and train yourself for godliness with other Christians. To train in community. Dallas Willard said this, he said, Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. That's the result of training. 
Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. You can't get there by trying. You can only get there through years and years of training. And that should be the goal of every Christian in this room. But we have to train ourselves to get there. You with me so far? That makes sense? But we can't stop there. We have to move on. Because I also need to emphasize that spiritual disciplines can't change us by themselves. A training program or equipping classes can't change us alone. Reading the Bible every day can't change us alone. These are simply channels for God's transforming grace. Growth comes from God. We're just opening ourselves up for that growth. Our own discipline is never enough. Just like our own parenting is never enough. No matter how hard I try with my sons, it will never be enough. We need the Lord's fatherly discipline. And that's the emphasis of the Joseph story. We need the father's paideia. Because you see, this is obvious, right? We all live in a broken world just like Joseph did. We all live in a broken world with tragedies and troubles and betrayal and famine. It's inevitable that we will experience that, but we can't stop there. We're also all broken ourselves. We all have broken souls. All of us are foolish and selfish and angry and jealous and bitter. Scripture would say that we're sinners. But God, through his paideia, wants to start peeling back the layers of our sin, making us look more and more and more like him. Someone who just nails this, I think, is in one of the Narnia books, C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with those books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think it is. In this story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this boy named Eustace. And Eustace is just awful. He's horrible. He doesn't like anyone. No one likes him. He's bitter. He's selfish. He's mean. He's immature. No one wants to be around him. Well, at one point in the story, Eustace finds a cave. And inside this cave is treasure. And it's gold, and it's silver, and it's rubies, and diamonds. And he's so excited, right? He's, he's, he's stumbled over this treasure. And he's thinking, you know, his greed just kind of takes him over. And he's thinking about how he can get back at everyone who wronged him. And he's just, you know, it's just clutching this treasure. And then he falls asleep. <laughs> okay. And here's the problem. He falls asleep on this treasure, and we're told that the treasure actually belongs to a dragon. And to make a long story short, Eustace actually wakes up and in his sleep, because of his greed, we're told that he actually has become a dragon himself. So he wakes up and all of a sudden he's not a boy anymore. He's big and he's ugly and he's covered in scales. And he thinks he's stuck like that. He goes to this really low place. He begins to think that he'll never be able to change. And then Aslan shows up. You know the stories. This is the Jesus character in the story. Aslan shows up. Aslan, the great lion, shows up. And he looks at Eustace and he says, start peeling back the skin. And so Eustace starts peeling it back and peeling it back and peeling it back. But he gets frustrated because every time he peels it, it comes off, but there's another layer underneath. And then Aslan looks at him and he says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. You're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's how Eustace tells the story. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. 
but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And so Aslan begins peeling layer after layer after layer. And it's slow and it's painful, but guess what? Eustace is changing. It's slow and it's painful, but Eustace is changing. That's the Lord's discipline. It's slow, it's painful, it hurts. Sometimes it feels like it's going to kill us. But we're changing. We're changing. Just to give a little bit more context here, I, I love, this is, this is really powerful because I love this image of layers that C.S. Lewis uses. Because there's been uh, Christians throughout history that have kind of identified in the Bible that the Bible talks about four different types of layers of sin. Four different types of layers. And when I first read this, this blew my mind. I read this from a theologian named Robert Mulholland. And he identifies these four different layers of sin that tend to show up in our lives. Four layers that God wants to use his claws to peel back. The first category, we can kind of think of that as the top layer. The first category is called gross sins. Gross sins. And this one's simple. These are sins that even non-Christians would say are sins. Okay? These are sins that you can get pretty much anyone to agree that these things are wrong. So maybe you know, we'd say, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. And so when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit probably didn't have to do too much work on those sins. Because even before that, you already knew that murdering was wrong. Right? So that's kind of the top layer, gross sins. And then we go to the second layer. And Christians have often called that deliberate sins. Deliberate sins. This is dealing with behaviors that are acceptable in our culture, but they aren't the way of Jesus. And so maybe a couple examples that I thought of. Materialism. Gossip. These are things, these are behaviors that aren't the way of Jesus, but because of the culture we live in, we may not even think of them as sins. A well-known passage that addresses this is Romans 12, 2. Paul says this, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here's what you need to understand. When we're talking about spiritual growth, when we're talking about growing to be more like Jesus, we don't start with a blank slate. We don't start with a blank slate. Our goal is to be formed into the image of Jesus, but we live in a world that has deformed us into its own image. And so it's easy to point the finger at the sins of our culture, not knowing how much we've been formed ourselves by our culture. So spiritual formation, we talk about that a lot. Spiritual formation, it's not just a Christian thing. It's a human thing. Everyone's soul is being formed all the time. It's either being conformed to the world, or it's being transformed into the image of Jesus. And so deliberate sins are the result of being conformed to the world. That's the first two layers, okay? But we're just getting started. The next layer, the third layer, starts getting into sins that are beneath the surface. We like to think a lot about those first two layers, but we forget about three and four because they're, they're beneath the surface. They're, they're what we may call our blind spots. And we often don't look at them because we don't want to look at them. Because <laughs> we don't want to find what is there. 
The third layer we'll call unconscious sins. Unconscious sins. So in your early days of following Jesus, it seems that the Holy Spirit really hones in on those top two layers. But then layer three is a challenge because it's beneath the surface. So here's how unconscious sins work. You can think about it like this. So gross sins, okay, gross sin, the gross sin would be murder, okay? The next, the, the deliberate sin, that would be yelling in anger at the person who did you wrong. But now this, this third, the unconscious sin, that would mean that someone does you wrong and you respond with a smile and you respond lovingly. And you respond in the way that you know you're supposed to be, respond. But deep down in your soul, you are seething with anger towards that person. Right? You're seething with anger. You're looking down upon them. It's not clear because it's not outside, right? But deep down in your soul, you're seething. Another example of this would be doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Outwardly, it's doing ministry. It's preaching a sermon. But inwardly, it's just to make much of myself or you. It's serving others, but it's all about you. So that's unconscious sense. And we're not done yet. There's a fourth layer. This is what Mulholland calls our trust structures. And he defines it this way. He says, those deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. These are things that we look to for a sense of security that aren't Jesus. These are idols that we put our trust in. It's the good things that we take and make them God things. Right? Your job, money, status, comfort, security, the list goes on and on. And what you need to see is that God, in his loving fatherly discipline, often will tear down these structures for our good. And it's painful, but he will tear down these structures for our good. I love this story uh, Tim Keller tells a lot that really resonates with me. He tells a story of a lumberjack and a mother bird. And he says that one day a lumberjack goes into a, a field and there's these trees lined up that he knows he's about to take down. But as he looks up into the first tree, he sees that there's a mother bird there building a nest. And compassion wells up inside of him. So here's what he does. He takes his axe and he spins it around to the back. And he hits that tree as hard as he can to really shake it. And the bird is frustrated, right? Like, what's this guy doing? He's just messing with me. And she moves on to the other tree. But that one's coming down too. And so he goes to the next tree and he hits that one. And then she goes to the next tree. And then he hits the next tree. And then finally, she goes up to a rock. And she begins building her nest there. And it's at that point that the lumberjack is satisfied and moves on. Because he knows she's safe. That's God's discipline. <laughs> That's God's discipline. Because here's the thing. Every tree is coming down. Every tree is coming down. So God in his fatherly discipline will often shake us out of our trust structures. Because he wants us to build our house on the rock, right? He wants us to build our house on the rock. And so let me show you, okay? Let me show you. Hebrews chapter 11, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. It says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline will always hurt. It will always feel like discipline is hurting you, but really it's strengthening you. Think about it. If you go to the gym and you pick up that dumbbell, right, and you're doing your curls, do you feel yourself getting stronger and stronger and stronger? If you do, you're doing it wrong, right? Like, you're way too light. If you're doing it right, you're going to feel yourself getting weaker and weaker and weaker, but in the process, what's happening? You're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. That's how God uses our suffering. That's what God's discipline looks like. And so think about the way that this changes how we view the hardships of life. It doesn't mean they don't hurt. It doesn't mean like we have to act like they're not a big deal. It doesn't mean we don't grieve and lament. But what it does mean is that God is using them as a vehicle of transformation because he loves us that much. I love this. One author put it this way. He said, true transformation of the soul doesn't happen at Disney World. It happens at Calvary. It happens at Calvary. So in the midst of suffering, you'll feel like you're wearing down. But if you endure, God will use it to strengthen you. And isn't that a summary of Joseph's story? (laughs) In his weakness, God was changing him. And then what does he do? He takes Joseph. And he turns him around on his brothers. And he uses them, him, to change them. He uses Joseph to peel back that dragon skin off his brothers. And that takes us to our third point, and I'll close with this one. Run out of time. Genesis 44 ends really powerfully, and I'm not going to talk much about it because Joe's going to take it next week and, and really explain it for us. But I want you to remember that throughout the story that I summarized, Joseph has been lovingly disciplining his brothers over a long period of time. And then comes the climax. Joseph requires that the youngest brother, Benjamin, must stay in prison for stealing the cup, which, remember, Joseph set up, and all the others can go. Now think about that. What's Joseph doing? Do you see it? What's he doing? He's putting them in the exact same situation that they were in decades earlier. All they have to do is give up their younger brother, the one that the father loves the most, and they walk free. It's exactly the same thing that happened in Genesis 37. But the result couldn't be more different. This is awesome. In Genesis 37, it is one brother's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. You remember? Judah, the fourth son. And now... It's Judah who steps up and offers himself as a substitute. He's the one who says, no, let me bear the blame. Let me take the penalty. Let me take the place of my brother. You know, Joe's going to talk about this next week. You know who Judah's ancestor, you know who's coming in the line of Judah? You know who his great, 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 great grandson is? It's Jesus. And he looks a lot like him right now, doesn't he? (laughs) He's the one who's willing to say, I know I didn't do anything wrong, but let me be in his place. Let me die the death that he deserves. I'll do it. That's the result 
of transformation. That's the result of discipline. Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. Isn't that the picture of Judah right now? (laughs) Effortlessly doing what Jesus would do in his place. So let me just ask you this. Do you want that? Like, Like honestly, do you want that? Do you want to look like Jesus? Or are you content just going through the motions, sitting in your seat that you've always sat in, singing the songs, just knowing that you're saved? Or do you want to look like Jesus? That's our question. That's our question. If you do, if you do, two things. Train yourself for godliness. A lot of you are training yourselves for a lot of other things. You're training yourself to be the best at your job or the best at music or the best at sports or whatever. Train yourself for godliness. And number two, endure the Father's loving discipline. Always remembering that it is loving because in all your hard work, you're not earning anything because Jesus already earned it for you. Because he lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve. And now we work in response to that. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to close by singing a song that we sang earlier, Goodness of God. Okay? And I want to sing that again because I don't know about you, but when I sing that song, I can't help but think back on my life on different moments. Right? We sing, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. Right? And I think back to all these times in my life where God has been faithful, where he has been so, so good. But here's what I want to challenge you with as we sing this again. That includes the times that felt like the low points of your life. That includes the valleys. That includes the worst thing that you've been through. That includes his discipline. He was still good, wasn't he? He was still good. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for your discipline, even though it's not fun. (laughs) Thank you that you care enough not just to forgive us, but also to want to see us grow to look more like you. I pray for this church. I pray that we will be a church marked by Christians who look like you. That when people see a member of West Park Baptist Church, They see something different. And it's the result of training ourselves for godliness and enduring your loving discipline. We thank you, Lord, for for growing us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.